Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. How many um, would raise your hand and say that um, you met Jesus when you were a kid? Okay, go ahead and hold those hands up. Look around. This is altar peaking here. All right, awesome. Okay, how about when you were older? Anybody here over 50 when you met Christ? Okay, Georgia, all right, awesome, awesome. All right, anybody in between kids and 50 when you came to know the Lord? (laughs) Awesome. You know, the Lord loves every one of them, every one of our salvation stories, and they're precious and unique to him. Have you ever felt like um, life was out to get you? Anybody ever felt that way? (laughs) It seems like there's this concerted attack upon your day or your life or who you are. And maybe maybe there's something to that. It's almost like you were singled out for that kind of thing. And maybe you're not that dramatic about it to ever think that (laughs) the whole world's out to get me or, or all of Anchorage or all of Alaska or everybody at my job or whatever. You might not be that dramatic. I mean, you can be dramatic and also be right, but, uh, but you might still think that the world is cruel and hard or harsh and hard to you. And when you think of everything together, I, I wonder, should we ever as Christians feel sorry for ourselves? Uh, I'll, let you, I'll let you meditate upon that for a moment because I can, I can tell you that we know that with our mind, but we still do it at times, don't we? Let self-pity sink in and the woe is me and... Um, can I confess to you that even pastors do that sometimes? <laughs> feel sorry for themselves, feel bad for the way things are going, and feel like the devil has a target specifically on your back, and maybe more than others, and, and I, I don't know that that's true. But when we think of all of our accounts, and we weigh on one side all that's wrong with the world, and with us, and on the other side, uh, all that Christ has done, what, how, does, how does it come out? How does it weigh out? Paul says it like this in one place, our present sufferings, our present troubles are not worth comparing with the glory which will be revealed in us. And he's talking about the weight of glory there, that there's more in the plus side than there is in the minus side when it comes to this world if you're trusting in Christ. And so this may be one of the most moving passages, the one we'll look at this morning um, all of, in all of Paul. Uh, he's facing down his final days. And it won't be long until the executioner will come and will take him to the place where he'll pour out a drink offering. In the past, he thought that it might, it might happen. Philippians, he says, I don't know what will happen. And uh, this apparently is his second Roman imprisonment. And now it appears uh, that the verdict is in and that he will lay down his life. He's going to pour out his last full measure to the Lord. And so there are some troubles, and he reflects upon these things. And, and I think that there's something to be said. The Lord, I felt like the Lord was speaking to me this week about this, is that it's easy in this life to, to get, kind of get overwhelmed in the negatives. And we can turn on the news and see all of that, and we can talk to people and hear the grumblings, and we can feel it in our bones that there's just something not right with the world. But I think Christians are more equipped than anybody to both see the reality of the negatives of this world and to deal with them in Christ. Do you agree with that? That of all people, we can look at things as they really are. We don't have to 
you know, turn on Louis Armstrong, Oh, What a Wonderful World, and kind of put all the negatives out of our mind and pretend like there's not a problem. There's a problem. You know that we're fallen. And even when we say people are pretty good people, we mean that in a relative sense because the Bible says that um, we all like sheep have gone astray, that that we're fallen. If we understand Christian classic theology, we understand that we're we're fallen in our natures and we're depraved because of sin. And we stand in need of God's help. And and if we're honest, too, the, the problem isn't just out there. It's it's in here. And we need God's help to to deal with that and to address that. And and so God has given us hope in the middle of that, that we can handle those kinds of things. Sin touches um, so many areas of life. And even when it's not our sin, it could be somebody else's sin. There is our sin, but sometimes we're impacted by the sins of other people in a, a major way. However, there's a refuge from the fight, and we can live there. And, and he will uh, even protect us from sin's final effect. You see, hell is the final effect, and C.S. Lewis called this the last monument to human freedom, is that if somebody wanted to persist in their wickedness long enough, they could resist God even to eternity. It's not God's will. In fact, I, I believe Scripture teaches that hell wasn't made for people. It's made for the devil and his angels, but it's the only other option if we don't choose God. And so there is a world that's like that, but he's, he's given us a way out. And there are comforting words here in Paul in these troubling times. Um, and I think through most of history, if we were to try to compare, are our times more troublesome than others? Let, let's not do that today. We can do that, but let's not do that today because every age has its troubles. Would you agree? And uh, every age has its graces from God and its help from God to respond to them. And so I'm not interested in unpacking a comparison, and I don't feel I should do that today. Uh, instead, uh, let's focus on what's shared. In every age, there's sin. In every age, there's a devil, the, the same one. And uh, there are the bleak, uh, or the breaks in relationships, and there are antagonisms and um, resentments towards people really trying to serve Christ, and so um, that's true in every age, and I thought maybe this morning someone here might need some encouragement, and so I want to try to do that as we look at this. That doesn't sound encouraging, but we're coming to it, okay? Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, let's read starting at verse 6. He's, um, Paul's kind of up to this point given his final encouragement and charge to Timothy, knowing that it's his last letter, potentially his last letter. Um, and then he kind of turns the corner and, and begins to go down that final stretch. And he says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith, and now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And listen to this, because you're included here. And not only to me, but to also to all who long for his appearing. Do your best to, to come to me quickly, for Demas has, because of this, his, his love for this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in the ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring my cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls. I like this portion because Paul... 
going down the final stretch is asking for them to bring books. He wants to read books. Bring the scrolls. Um, and then he says, especially the parchments, Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he's done. You two should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And a couple more greetings. And those are the last written words we have of Paul. So I want to talk first of all here about the worldly woes. Tell your neighbor, whoa, whoa. These are the worldly woes. What is is a woe? We don't really run around saying that very often unless we're trying to be a little bit biblical in our speech. Uh, but woe, woe means trouble, misfortune, sorrow, or distress, something in that category. You can kind of get the gist of it. Um, I, I, want, I don't want to, I don't want to discourage you this morning, but this world has woes. <laughs> if you don't already know that, it does. And go ahead and smile about it because we all, we all deal with them. But I want you to notice a balance here in this. Paul has, as we just read through this, Paul has mentioned some of the troubles that he's had as he's tried to serve the Lord. And sometimes I think that we think, I think this, and I, I bet you do too, that, that if I do what God has asked me to do, then people are mostly going to be nice to me, and I'm going to get the primary parking spot when I pull into Fred Meyer. Like, it's just going to open up, the perfect timing. People are going to get out, and that's going to be right where I get to go, and Everybody's going to like me, and it's just going to be a, a wonderful go of it. And no, the devil's going to kind of leave you alone because he don't want to mess with you because you're a powerhouse. But you know what I'm talking about? And we just think it's going to be smooth sailing. I think that's how we sometimes think. It's like, God, I've, I've done such a good job. <laughs> do, you, do you hear the ridiculousness of this? I've done such a good job of serving you. Surely it's going to go easy for me, right? And we think that. And that's not, that's not exactly how it plays out. And so if we're, we're real about it, um, I'd like you to notice a balance here because we're going to talk about the positive side. But let's start with these worldly woes and just mention that Paul does not shy away from naming the negatives. There's a whole theology out there that says don't ever name the negatives. And I want to suggest to you that neither Jesus nor Paul avoided naming the negatives. He, taught, he called them what they were. And, and Paul does that. He names the negatives. He doesn't shy away from that. But he's not a complainer. That's, that's different. Okay? When he says what is negative, he's not complaining. Okay? That's, I think, where we get really off rail is when our whole perspective gets skewed and it's all negative all the time. Okay? That's wrong because I think we start to believe it when we hear ourselves saying it over and over again. So I think that's where the problem can be with, with mentioning the negatives all the time. We need to say what they are and then uh, come to it where we let God meet those challenges and transform them. And so we bring them before him. Paul mentions the negatives, but he's not a complainer. He isn't living in a way that he has to convince himself that the troubles are not real. No, they're real. They're real. And he names them. The first, the first one, there's two of these, and you could probably break these into smaller categories, but I think the general ones are this. is One is that he was deserted by friends. 
okay? This is the, his last days, and um, he knows what it's like to be abandoned or deserted. Okay? Paul, in his final days, having done what's right, having built friendships, deep friendships in the Lord, he still knows what it's like for his friends not to be there when he needs them. He says in verse 10, actually verse 16, I'm going to deal with these backwards just because it, it builds kind of a logical crescendo here. But the first thing that he says in terms of the order here is in verse 16, at my first defense, um, no one came to my support. No one came to my aid. Look at that, verse 16. My first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. I don't know that Paul means absolutely everyone, but here he's talking about something very specific. And when he says at my defense, he uses a technical term for a courtroom defense. So this suggests to me that when Paul stands before Caesar, which I think is where he's going with this, perhaps right before Nero, we don't have any uh, actual historical evidence that that's happened other than that he appealed to Caesar and that he should go to Caesar. But whether we don't have any record of it, I should say, uh, of him having appealed there. But in his courtroom defense, no one came to his support. And if you know anything about that classical court system, you had the accusations, and then you had the defendant, and you had people that came as character witnesses in support, similar to what we have. He says, nobody came to my support. They, everyone deserted me. Can you imagine how that feels, building churches Sowing into lives, investing in people. If you're a parent, probably you know some of the, the how that can go at times, is that you poured out your life and there's ingratitude, it would feel. And I think Paul might have felt that. He said, everyone deserted me. Okay, Some of his friends, now just to be clear, because he says everyone, I don't think he means absolutely everyone. I think he means some people that he expected to be around him because there are some people that are not there because they're away doing ministry and they could not come, okay? Do you, do you understand that? that? That sometimes when we think about why we're going through something alone, we need to understand that there are other people that are dealing with other areas, and they can't be there. They want to be there. They can't, okay? So Paul mentions them. He mentions a few people that are in that category. I think he understood that when people are, were away. I think it's reasonable to think that most of those mentioned by name in verses 10 through 12 Paul doesn't fault them. He mentions Crescens and Titus and Mark and Tychicus and even Timothy to whom he's writing. He doesn't say, you abandoned me. He says, these others, they deserted me. And so there were some that could not come to his support because they were busy. Um, But they still weren't there. And Paul had to deal with some of these troubles by himself. Can you relate to that? You ever had to deal with something by yourself? You expected others to be with you. I don't want... I don't want us to get in self-pity here or to get bitter or angry with others. But I bet you that if we went around the room, in fact, let's take time for that this morning. I'm just kidding. But if we did, I bet we would find that everybody has felt like that at a time, one time or another. Like I've gone through this by myself. And where where were you? Where, where were you to the church? And where were you probably uh, to your friends? And maybe even where were you, God? felt like you were alone in that. And if you have felt that way, you're, you're not alone, I'm sure. Remember Jesus, even on the cross, said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt the forsakenness of the Father for the first time when, when sins were put upon him. Okay? And so others may have 
remained unnamed who Paul expected to be there for him, probably people in the church in Rome. Like, Ephesus in the ancient world is a long way from Rome. Paul's writing to Timothy, who's in Ephesus. It's a long way for Timothy to come to Rome from there. Okay? But the Roman church that was, by all appearances, a growing church, why weren't there more people there to defend the Apostle Paul? And he names this. He recognizes that there were people that didn't show up. And then he mentions one name in particular that's a little bit troublesome because we hear in other places the name Demas in connected with being connected with great things that God has done in his life. God is using Demas in great ways. And here in verse 10, he says, Demas has departed. And the, the phrase is, this modifies the, the verb, why he departed, is because he loved this present world. It sometimes is too costly, like for association with the Apostle Paul, knowing him, being connected with him. If he's found guilty, that could weigh upon me, and I could be found guilty too. They're not looking for hard evidence. They're looking for um, people, what's, the, what's it called? Accomplices <laughs> that go along with their Christianity. And so Timothy's, or Paul uh, says Demas is like, nope. They want to make that sacrifice, having loved this present world. And it seems to me that Demas not only deserted Paul, but I think he backslid the way that this, having loved this present world. Remember, John says, those who love the world, the love of the Father is not in them. So somewhere, and I, I think he had a true relationship with God, and now he's fallen away. So Demas now has departed. We've all known people who were once serving Christ faithfully in their their love for him at some point began to grow cold, and some even oppose Christ now. That's a, such a strange thing and such a troubling thing, especially if Paul was the one who led demons to the Lord. And I, I don't know that that's the case, but that would be especially troubling for Paul, who his good friend was Demas. And he not only departed from Paul, but it would appear to me departs from Jesus too. That's got to be a heavy weight to bear. Who doesn't know in all of this what it's like to go through things and to feel as though we're doing it alone? Paul did, and Jesus certainly did, didn't he? When uh, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he asked the disciples something, what's he asked them to do? Pray. Watch and pray one hour. Pray for him? I don't know, maybe, but more, he says, pray that you, f- you enter not into temptation. He's asking them pray because the test is coming. And the test comes, and you strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter. And that's exactly what happened. They all went their way. And, you know, (laughs) some of the heroes uh, in the early church are the women who stood by the cross. Did you know that? Where are the guys? Sadly, they've they've jetted. They got out of there quick. Only John is kind of mentioned as lingering there. But the others are, they took off. And so Jesus knows what it's like to, in his moment of need, to be abandoned and to bear that alone. You see, uh, when it comes to these things, um, they, some of them may have deserted willfully to save their own skin. Some, they might not know that they've left you alone to deal with your problem. And in some cases, they might be wrapped up in their own problems. And so... There is the reality of dealing with difficulty alone. That's the first kind of trouble that he mentions. The first kind of woe of the world is that you're going to have problems, but it makes it a lot worse when you have to go through it alone. Number two is that 
the second problem he mentions is being hated by the world. Okay, this also is is your lot. Um, you might not feel it as aggressively as Paul does. Like we're not dragging you out into the street, and people aren't, you know, martyring you for the cause. That does happen in places in the world. If you're not aware of that, let's open up our eyes because there are people that are dying for their faith today. But um, the Bible does say anyone who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And that persecution might be that people are actively against you and harassing you. And it might be the more passive, which is often the case, of um, leaving you out or um, trying to think of the right word here. Well, leaving you out. You don't get included. You don't get included in the group because you you don't go along with certain things. You have certain views about what's right and wrong. And so you get excluded. There's the word, excluded for the sake of Christ. Paul here is talking about something a little more aggressive than that. He mentions Alexander the metal worker in verses 14 and 15. I'd like you to notice what it says there of Alexander the metal worker. He says, he did me a great deal of harm, and then the Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. And so there's two reasons, or and these might be overlapping reasons, that Paul gives that Alexander was working against him. One is that he did great harm to him. Whether that was a personal attack or not, we don't know. But we do know the, the other thing that happens here is he obstructed the gospel. What is Paul's primary passion? And what should be the primary passion of every believer? It should be the gospel. And so when Alexander comes in, he obstructs the gospel in some way, working against the spread of the gospel. He may have spread rumors about Paul. He might have uh, gone back behind him and followed behind him and tried to unconvince or uh, convince people that the gospel is not true. But in some way, he worked against Paul. Okay? The name suggests that he's Greek, but the experience could suggest that he maybe also could be Jewish. And so whatever it is that's caused this, he stands against Paul because Paul's doing the right thing. Okay? It might be the fact that you're doing the right thing that you find you have a target on your back, the very fact. And so when we tend to think, well, I'm doing the right thing, and so I shouldn't have any troubles. It should be smooth sailing through life. Uh, well, you've got God off your back, but you don't have the world off your back. You've actually got them on your back now. And so you're going to have troubles there. You've got to pick your battle and know the world's at war, and it's impossible to escape conflict. Okay, And even if you're a chameleon and try to blend in with both crowds, God's got your number because he sees through the pre- pretense, and he will harass you in a good way. Right? And that's good. He want, we need him to do that. Uh, verse 6, uh, it says, we'll come back to Alexander in just a moment when we look at the good things here. But in verse 6, it says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. This is a kind of a poetic way that Paul, Paul says this. He's probably not thinking, I'm writing good poetry here. He's probably thinking, um, here's a great metaphor for what's happening, is that there's the drink offering uh, which is a small portion that's poured out upon the greater offering. The greater offering is Jesus. Okay? The drink offering is the lesser portion. And he's seen himself as being poured out as a part of an offering to the Lord. And poured out here means that he's giving 
the last full measure. He, he ties that in with the time of my departure is near. When he says I'm being poured out, he's also saying the time of my departure is near. Do you get the picture? Okay, this is the last hurrah. And I'm ready to lay it all down for Jesus. So this is what he's saying. He's being poured out to the last full measure. Philippians, he hints at it where he talks about I might be poured out like a drink offering. Here he says I already am being. And this is a bitter pill to swallow that that um, people can feel that they're doing the right thing when they oppose you. Okay, So Paul is getting ready to lay down his life, I suppose, the emperor, although I think he knows why he's doing it, and other people who have oppressed Paul and fought against Paul, and even Paul himself, when he was a persecutor, thought that when he persecuted the church, he was doing God a favor. And you may feel that there are, because of the the changing shift in morals in our society, that people will call right wrong and wrong right. And because you stand on the side of right, you'll be persecuted, and people will feel like they're doing the right thing in doing that. If you stand up against certain behaviors and say, this is not God's plan and his design, you'll find that there are people who feel that they're so in tune with what's right that they'll attack you and actually be on the wrong side of the issue. And that's the confusion of our day is is not having a real moral compass that points north, right? So there's trouble in that. And this this has happened in Paul's day, and, and Jesus promised it. In uh, John chapter 16, verse 2, There's coming a day when anyone who kills you will think they're offering God a service. So there are people that will think that they're doing the right thing by God. In this case with Paul, and I know we're dealing back uh, about 2,000 years, but this does relate to us. I'd like you to think of this. Um, In this case, it's rumored that Nero secretly set fires to Rome because he wanted to um, renovate the city. And so get the ugly buildings out of the way and the things that were in the way of his master plan. He secretly had a, a fire set. And then when p- the public outcry began to rise up, he used Christians as a scapegoat. and He began to actively persecute Christians. And we, we know this is a matter of history. Some of the secular historians of the day report on this. They tell us that these things happened, that, that it was for these reasons and the rumor of, of, of Nero's fire that he started to persecute Christians. Okay? And he did that by throwing some into the arena to the lions. That happened. It's not just something we uh, have made up. That happened. Um, He covered some in tar. I'm not sure if it was Tacitus or Suetonius that reports this. Tacitus was a Roman historian. I think he he may be the one that reports this. Um, And there's another, uh, maybe Galen or or something that reports on this, but um, that they covered Christians in pitch or tar and lit them on fire, and that was used to light up their garden parties. Okay? So you can imagine uh, the cruelty that goes along with that. Peter is said to have died in this persecution in Rome on an upside-down cross, and Paul eventually is going to be beheaded. Okay, And that's all part of this same persecution. And I think it's terrible that God's messengers of hope would be so badly treated. Hebrews comments that on this in uh, chapter 11, verse 38, when it says, uh, of whom the world were not worthy. The world was not worthy of these. And so you get uh, the picture. And even worse is the frivolous reasons that are concocted for killing them. They set fire. That's, that was made up. The Christians weren't doing that. And then, not only that, but the ridiculous ways many of them died to make... 
to be ridiculous is to make ridicule of someone. Okay? And that's what they were. Is they, they, they killed them in ridiculous way. Now, Paul doesn't shy away from naming the negatives, both the desertion of friends uh, and being hated by the world. He talks about those things and he mentions them. But he's not a complainer. And the reason uh, he's not a complainer is that he accounts for the positives of overcoming the negatives. And I wonder if we do that. I wonder if we, we think about all the negatives and we fail to reflect upon the positive side of things. And we've just done that, but don't stop there. Listen on. Because there's a positive side here. And uh, you know the struggles of other believers that can help us as we look at Paul's life. He's, he's named his struggles, and he usually does that, sometimes in an ironic way, because there were people in the Corinthian church that thought that if you're a true apostle, then you wouldn't have all these problems. And Paul intentionally names them, and he talks about all his persecutions and the difficulties that he faced in order to show that no true apostles many times walk at the back of the line. They're in the back of the parade. And those who are loved by God and used by God many times have to bear a heavy load and trouble in life. And I'm not trying to speak negativity over your life or anything like that. I'm saying to you, that as a fact of reality is that many of God's great servants go through incredibly difficult times. And he uses them as trophies for his glory, that in the midst of that, they still remain faithful to him. They still hold on to the banner of Christ. And so if there's any comfort in Christ, let it be in these things. Number one, in doing the right thing. Notice verse 7 as Paul is looking down through um, these last days. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is near. Then he says in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness. We'll talk about that in the next. But the first thing here is there is comfort in all of our troubles, in persecutions, in facing difficulties in life, that we've still done the right thing. Okay? There has to be some kind of comfort in being able to lay our heads on our pillow at night and know, okay, it didn't all go well or the way that I thought it would, but I did the right thing as best I knew it. Okay, folks, listen, be encouraged in that because one day that will pay off big. You're not getting rewarded. You're not getting salvation because you've worked great for God. But I'm saying that when we get to heaven and rewards are divvied out, God is going to take into account what you've done for him. Do you understand that? It's not about getting there. It's about the rewards that follow. It seems that there are degrees of rewards. And if that troubles you, reflect upon it. Look at uh, the New Testament. I know you're going to talk about the people who came late in the day and got the same wage. Perhaps that's salvation. Okay? But think about others who received reward for the sacrifices that they made, the great sacrifices they made. And it may just be an estimation in God's eyes that is all we'll care about. So notice the next thing here is that the reward in verse 8, if there's comfort in going through the troubles of this life, know that God is watching and keeping account. Verse 8 says uh, this, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all to, to whom all and to all who have longed for his appearing. Okay, he's, it's not just for Paul, but it's for anyone who longs for his appearing. There's a reward. And in order for there to be this kind of reward, I'd like for you to notice um, there in other places it talks about crown of life. Here, a crown of righteousness 
And, and I don't know that we necessarily need to distinguish. He's talking metaphorically about the reward that God will give. And the fact that he's going to give it shows that he's paying attention to what we're doing with our lives. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that we're just going to get there and then he's going to find out and ask us how it went? <laughs> I think he knows. I think he knows the things we're going through. The Lord will reward me. And I, I, I will hope in the middle of your struggle, whatever it might be, sometimes it's big things and sometimes it's small things. And the irony is that sometimes it's the little things that like are the straw that breaks the camel's back. You know what I mean? I <laughs> There's all of the hard things, and then there's this one little thing, and it just kind of puts you over the edge. But I would hope that in all of this, one measure of comfort that will come is from knowing that there is reward in serving God faithfully. Third thing is that there is um, comfort in Christian friends. I talked about how many people deserted him, but look at, does Paul write people off? And this can be the case sometimes, like nobody nobody showed up for my thing or, um, you know, nobody was there when I needed them or, you know, where were they or whatever, okay? Notice that one tendency is to get cynical and go like, I'm just done with people. Anybody b- ever been there? Okay. I had a professor in Bible college that said, Do you ever, uh, maybe it was a visiting pastor, I'm not sure. If you ever feel like resigning from your church, write the letter put it in the drawer, and get back to work. And uh, sometimes you want to resign on people, like, I'm done. Paul doesn't do that. Look at what he says here. He's talking about his fellow workers, his friends, his helpers, his previous deserters. Um, if you just look through verse 6 and following, somewhere around, actually, verse uh, verse 11 Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark. Bring him to me uh, because he's helpful to me in the ministry. And then if you go on down, he mentions um, some other people at the very end of the letter here. He talks about uh, Priscilla and Aquila in the household of Onesephorus and Erastus, um, Trophimus, some other people, uh, Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers and sisters and Eubulus. And some really interesting names there. Uh, Paul's not ready to be done with people, even though he's looking down the last home stretch of life. And he's been hounded by people and disappointed by people. He's not ready to be done with people. In fact, he finds them to be an incredible comfort. And I'd like you to notice one in particular, Mark. What is Mark known for? Do you remember when uh, Paul and Barnabas set out on their first missionary journey? And they come to Cyprus and... Then I think from there they sailed to, to the, uh, the Turkish mainland area. And it's at one of those little cities that Barnabas' cousin, John Mark, who is known as Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, got homesick and decides to go back. Do you remember that? And he deserted them. And so later on in the ministry, it's time for Paul and Barnabas to set out for the next missionary journey. And Barnabas says, let's bring Mark. And Paul's like, no, I'm not bringing that deserter. Right? He's, he blew it. How do we know he's not going to get homesick again? There's too much weight on our shoulders to bring somebody who is weak in character. I th- that's not what Paul said, but that's how I think he said it. And so um, he doesn't bring Mark. But now, several years later, maybe 30 years later, he says about the deserter Mark, bring Mark. He's useful for ministry. Isn't that beautiful? He's forgiven that, and he stands in need of his help. 
Okay, so he finds comfort in Christian friends. Let me quickly move to the next one. The next comfort is this, and I don't want you to get too attached to this and loving this too much, but the vengeance of the Lord. Okay, there's comfort in this. Okay, but we need to we need to embrace it for the right kinds of reasons. You can see uh, an example of this in Second Peter chapter two verse nine, where it says God knows how to hold those who uh, are in Him for reward and also those who are rebellious to him for judgment. He knows how to hold them in those categories and and to keep them and and to punish them when the time is there. But Paul doesn't say this about Alexander. He says of Alexander the metal worker. um, This is verse 14. Alexander the metal worker did me great harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. And you too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. Okay, we could read like, oh, thank goodness, somebody can really be honest here and say that they're glad that the wicked are going to get punished. I don't know that Paul is glad about this. I'm not sure that we should take this in that particular way. It seems to me when he's saying, he's talking about vengeance, Paul doesn't say it in order for people to be happy at Alexander's demise. God will take care of him is more of a way of letting go of the ill feelings and letting God handle it. In other words, we don't, we don't have to work through all of this and try to figure out how we're going to get back at Alexander. Leave that in God's hands and get on with the work of ministry. Watch out for him. He might be trouble. Okay? We don't need to focus so much on that. So entrust judgment to God and continue to do good. Romans chapter 12 says at the end of that, if um, it says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, but if your enemies hungry, feed them, dot, dot, dot. Okay. So in other words, let God take care of the getting back at people and go, go, go ahead and just do the right thing. That's the point. Okay. So entrust that to the Lord. Vengeance is the Lord's. And so we can, be, we can be thrilled with this fact that nobody ever gets away with sin. Do you know that? Not even you and not even me. Because it's either placed upon Jesus and atoned for or we'll bear judgment ourselves before God. No sin is ever dismissed without payment. Number nine is, sorry, not number nine, number five. Suddenly we jumped ahead. My numbering system got messed up here somehow. Uh, Is for the Lord's presence and help. This really should be last, and I I will come back to this momentarily, but there's two more things, this one and the next, and we're, we're at the end here, but... Notice the presence of the Lord, the Lord's presence and help in verse 17. At my first defense, no one came, verse 16. But everyone deserted me, may not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and he gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. Okay. The Lord's presence and help. He helps us in the present moment. Hey, listen, this is present moment stuff that Paul is talking about. I went through this in, in my trial, and nobody came to my defense, but the Lord stood at my side. There again is another picture of Christ being an advocate. Okay? No one came to my defense, a technical term. Now Christ standing at his side suggests something like his being his defense and his help in that particular moment. I'd like you to notice... Um, the strength that there is in Jesus. Okay, when it says he stood at my side, it's a word that means that it's to be near and ready to help. 
or to enable one. Okay, so when he says he stands at my side, he was near me and he was able to help me to get through this. Said I was delivered from the lion's mouth, verse 17. Okay, what what does that mean? Is he talking about the devil? Is he talking about Caesar? Is he talking about Alexander or something else? Well, the only way you can really get to this, because Paul doesn't tell us, is to understand how lion's mouth is used in the Bible. And and we're not even going to get exactly to it with this, because lion's mouth um, refers to actual lions in Daniel and David. Do you know that? That they faced actual lions. David killed lions, and Daniel was thrown in the lion's den, but he was saved from the lion's mouth. Okay, so there's actual lions that are there. And in Psalm 22, lions refer to, and the lion's mouth in particular refers to wicked people. So it could be wicked people. And then we also all know, we probably thought of this first, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, the devil is referred to as a roaring lion who's running around seeking whom he may devour. And usually when you devour things, you do it through your mouth. So you see the connection. Is it, is it um, actual lions? Is it people? Is it the devil? Well, with the fact that Nero is throwing people to lions, it could be the first one. With the fact that uh, there are people attacking Paul, it could be the second one, people. And the devil's always on the prowl for Paul. It could be the third one. We don't know exactly, except to say this, that whatever the lion's mouth meant, God shut it. Okay? What's your lion's mouth? And can God close the mouth of the lion and preserve you? I think so. I don't know what what it is that Paul is facing here, but uh, he delivers, Christ delivers in the present moment. And we should not think that this means no troubles at all. We've already mentioned some of the troubles that are there. But it means, uh, and he names the troubles, it means that Paul overcomes all of them as he stands with Christ. And finally, there is ultimate deliverance. Okay, look at verse 18 with me, and this is really... It's all really good, but look at verse 18 as he brings this to a close. The Lord will rescue me. Is that past tense? Is that present tense? Or is that future? The Lord will rescue me. It's looking forward. It's a future acknowledgement of ultimate deliverance, a future hope. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom, to him be glory forever and ever. This is talking about ultimate deliverance. Here's a reason to find comfort in a troubled world. If you're finding it bitter, there's sweetness in Jesus, because this world as it is does not last forever. Okay? You might not have thought about this before. I hope you have. But one of the, the joys of going home to be with Jesus is that the troubles of this life come to an end. Okay? We need to go in his time. We need to trust him for it. But we also ought to be looking forward to the day when we see him face to face. When I was a kid, I did not want Jesus to come back before I got a chance to live life. Anybody else? You grew up in impending fear that the rapture might come and you'd miss out on something? I know I did. Mom's out in the garden and in the backyard somewhere, and I take a nap, and I wake up. And you can't find her anywhere. And you're like, oh, Lord, the rapture happened. I knew I wasn't ready. And you're afraid of things like that. It's not something to fear. It's something to bring hope to our lives. Okay? The world has trouble. Okay? But it does. But he will wipe every tear from our eyes, the scripture says. 
and he overcomes the kingdoms of this world, become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. How does that happen? He subsumes them, and all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. He overcomes. This is the good news at the end of the story. You might be troubled by the present news, but believe the good news that Jesus overcomes it all. And when it says he will bring us safely to his heavenly kingdom, it could be translated literally because the word for safely here is the same word for salvation. It could be translated something like this. He will save me into his heavenly kingdom. Isn't that lovely? That's what he's going to do. And he knows uh, how to bring us home. God does. Christ knows how to bring us home. He knows how to deliver on that. And so even the fact that Paul is going to face the executioner's sword, sometimes we think that deliverance can only happen one way. And I think Pentecostals sometimes are the worst about this. Is like we see a slim, narrow vision of what deliverance is, and it's like it's got to be this. And it needs to be in some glorious way that is exceedingly miraculous and avoiding all heartache and trouble and anything like that or any, anything that's hard, okay? But I wonder if that's biblical because when we look at this, Paul realized he's going to be delivered, but how is he delivered? Through the executioner's sword. <laughs> I remember one guy was a preacher on college campus. I didn't agree with his method or approach, but a lot of times he'd get death threats because of how aggressive he was with his evangelism. And people would kill, say, I'm going to kill you. And he'd say, oh, good, threaten me with heaven. You know, like that's, that's what's going to happen if you kill me. And uh, I think it was probably fueling the fire a little bit. But the point is true, isn't it? Is that beyond this life, there is life. And there is life. And there is life. And so we're not caught by the executioner's sword and saying, well, sure, shame that Paul was right up until now, but now he's not been delivered. Remember the three Hebrews when they were to bow down to the statue in Daniel? And they refused to do it, and Nebuchadnezzar gives them another chance, and they say, we won't do it, and he's furious with them, and he confronts them, and they say, um, we will not bow down to your image, O king, and you may throw us to the fiery furnace, but we still will not bow down, and our God will deliver us. Hey, listen, even if they died, they would have been delivered from Nebuchadnezzar's hands, Okay. There's, there's deliverance for all who are in Christ. It's a win-win if he brings you out. God always delivers in one of two ways. He'll either bring us out of the trouble or he'll bring us through the trouble. But he always delivers, and that's good news. And it felt, it felt like on my heart this week that, that I needed to say, if you're finding bitterness in the world, would you turn with all that you are into the sweetness of Jesus? And you'll find more than what's necessary to get through life's troubles. This is kind of trite, but it's true. When dealing with the world that's wrong, we need to turn to the one thing that's right. right? That sounds like a movie slogan, doesn't it? But, but I think it's true that with everything going wrong, we might get real cynical and jaded. There's something that stands before us that's right. God is right, and he will redeem all, and he will set things to right when he rules and reigns. And so, um, sometimes the feelings surrounding death, I, I, don't, I don't know this exactly, but it seems to me that 
facing down death like Paul does sharpens the focus and priorities of life and you start to think about what's really, really important. And uh, laying aside some things that are not important. I was reading this last week about the (laughs) polar exploration, you know, the South Pole. Do you know some of that was just pure catastrophe? They're trying to find the South Pole. And so uh, this writer was writing about the English expedition trying to get to the South Pole. I think it was led by Scott. And he had a few people with him, and um, they were making their way. And one of the things that they did is they didn't want to overuse sled dogs because they they didn't want to mistreat animals and all of that. Fine. Um, But they finally get to the South Pole, and they find the Norwegian flag uh, plastered there. And it was... Amundsen is the one who got there first. He's Norwegian. And he had a, he had a regiment of, uh, this might be troubling to you, so close your ears if you need to, but uh, frequently on schedule eating his sled dogs as he went along. And so that's one of the ways he got there. And also he packed enough rations, and he left behind superfluous things. One of the things the English team brought was button polish for their fancy buttons and all kinds of things that were unnecessary, books and which I don't, I, I kind of, I think that's kind of heroic myself. But, but they uh, they brought all this stuff and they they measured out their rations so that no one was carrying too much. And do you know that on their way back they traveled 700 miles, 748 I think it was, uh, from the South Pole, heading back towards their camp, their base camp, and um, they came to this place and it was like the last ditch. One of the guys, his name was Oates. Um, he had gang, he had frostbitten feet that were turning gangrenous, and he realized he was slowing the other guys down. And so, he uttered one of the most famous last phrases in uh, polar expedition history. He says, "I'm just going outside, and I may be some time." And he never came back. Walked out into a blizzard and never came back. Sacrificed himself, I think, for the sake of the team. And they found the other guys uh, a little bit later. They were frozen solid, and um, they went and uncovered their sled. They'd been hauling the sled under their own power, and they uncovered their sled, and you think there was food or anything that they needed found there? No. They had a bunch of rocks that had fossils in them that they'd brought back. So they didn't have what they needed, but they had all these superfluous things. Like, if you're dying, leave the fossil behind and take a sandwich. You know what I mean? And the really sad part about this was they had traveled 748 miles, and they, where they found them was 11 miles from a one-ton dump of supplies that they needed. 11 miles. So close. And they missed it. They gave up too soon. They, they didn't persist. They didn't draw into the thing that they really needed. And I think in a troubling world like ours, there's a lot of harsh, I imagine, we know a little bit about harsh weather here, but... Uh, a lot of harsh conditions to polar exploration. You got to have what you need. Okay, you have to have what you need. And in today's world, there's a lot of trouble. But if you have Jesus, you have enough. And if you'll draw into Him, you'll find that there is a sweetness that will counterbalance, and if if not overbalance, the bitterness you find in the world. Every Christian ought to be sweet in their demeanor, not jaded, not cynical. Not hateful. Come on. True? Lovers of people willing to forgive, realizing there is 
with the badness in the world, also a goodness that can outshine it all. We can have that perspective as Christians because we know how bad humanity can get in its fallenness, but we also know how good God's redemption is. And some of you here are trophies to his goodness. If we, we wouldn't even recognize you 20 years ago, you know, there's a change that happens. So I want to encourage you to draw into the sweetness of Jesus. I think this must look a little bit like this. Paul says, the Lord stood at my side. He was there when I needed him. Nobody else was there. The Lord was there. You're never alone if you're a Christian. And I think drawing into him must mean something like finding a place. If you're carrying the load of burden on your shoulders, finding a place in God where you can get alone with him and unpack your load and give it to him. Casting all of your cares on him because he cares for you. Giving all of your troubles. I found in my life that when I feel like I've been hurt or disregard it. You know, a lot of the hurts usually come from just inconsideration. It's usually not people's meanness. It's especially hurtful when it's mean, but a lot of times people just were inconsiderate. They didn't think about how that would make me feel, or I never thought about how it would make them feel, and we get real offended about that. You know what I found does me good? Talk about it with Jesus. Say, Lord, I'm offended by this. Look what they did. Look what they said. Look what they didn't do. We were trying to do this thing for you, and they didn't get on board with it. Why not? Do you know what happens? <laughs> we start to process that, me and Jesus together. And somehow, coming into the presence of Jesus and telling him about all of your troubles. <laughs> you know what I mean? Have you ever been in that place where you've told somebody about how difficult life has been, and then you realize they've had it a lot worse? You come in and talk to Jesus about it. Does he know what betrayal's about? You bet he does. Does he know what it's like to have people hate him? Yeah, he does. For people not to get on board and understand him? Yeah. To be left alone to deal with the weight of the world? Yeah. He knows it all. We can come in in his sweet way. He doesn't despise us coming and bringing our problems to him and say, man, get on board. Don't you know what I've been through? He doesn't do that. He says, I understand. I'm here to sympathize with your weaknesses. I understand what it means to be human. It's beautiful, isn't it? That we can come to him in our time of needing and receive grace for that. Thank God. I thought today we might pray for each other and understand sometimes we just need to take a moment to get alone with Jesus. Zach, go ahead and come. But um, I thought maybe it'd be good to pray together. And I don't want to be the only one doing the praying, but... If you'd like some prayer today, I want to invite you to come and stand up here. And if you see somebody here that um, is here for prayer, come pray with them. And I'm going to do the same. But I want, if you're facing some difficult times right now, remember one of the comforts in that is the help of friends. And we need to know what one another are going through. Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your attention today. Father, thank you, Lord, that you've given us help. You've not called us from our own grittiness to, to try to get through this or to somehow insulate ourselves from this troubled world. In fact, I think you'd like us to be um, wise as serpents but harmless as doves. And I think you'd probably like us to have thick skin but a tender heart. I think you want us to be the kind of people that can deal with all of the world's ugliness and still be good. And so for that, we need your help, and especially today in a very acute and specific way. Would you, would you help us 
Maybe someone here is struggling with something. Would you meet us in these moments? And if no one's known the, the joy of turning to you, I pray today they would just say, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, forgive me and come in. And that you would make that change in them today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let me remind us of our, our words of our Lord. who said, in the world you'll have trouble, but I've overcome the world. Take courage. I've overcome the world. Aren't you glad for that? Amen. Father, thank you for the great promises there are in Jesus. And I pray, Lord, you'd let uh, the principles of this message resound in our heart, that it might carry us through some difficult times because your word has spoken and you've shown it again and again that you are enough for us to find sweetness in this life, Lord, and in the life to come as well. And I pray, God, you'd help us as Christians to have smiles and, and to be joyful and to not let the troubles bring us down. We we lean on you today. We lean heavily upon you, Lord, for all of your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.